The Scottish FA Cup fourth round. Brecon City nil. Dundee United one. Clydebank against Burnian as a late kickoff. Dundee one. Meadowbank Thistle one. Alloa Athletic Airdrionians. Heart of Midlothian. Hamilton Academical. Queen's Park. Queen of the South. These are names I associate with the Saturday tea times of my childhood when I'd sit down to watch the football results on BBC's Grandstand programme and the mention of Stenhouse Muir and Stirling Albion would conjure up images of... well, images of what exactly? I really didn't know. Scottish League Division 1, Clyde 1, Edrionians 0, the Barton 2, Montrose 1. They sounded exotic, faraway places with a touch of romance and mystery that the more familiar English clubs seem to lack. Scottish League Division 2, Air United 2, Alloa 0. I'm Lionel Burney, and I grew up two doors down from Simon Gill. Hello! As children, our two obsessions were football, and then a little later, cycling. We played and watched football together, and we'd head into the Hertfordshire lanes on our bikes, pretending we were riding the Tour de France. When the pandemic put life on pause, we talked about what we'd like to do when we could travel again. I said I wanted to do a multi-day bike ride of some sort. Simon said he wanted to visit and photograph every Scottish football league ground. We looked at a map and realised we could combine the two ideas. The Tour de Cosse was born, the beautiful game on two wheels. There are so many questions to be answered over the course of this series, Will we make it as far as Forfar without falling out? Why are Cowden Beath called the Blue Brazil? What actually is Iron Brew? And do my ancestors really hail from Burnie? Queen's Park nil, Albion Rovers nil. Spelling Albion one, East Albion. Well, Simon, we've eloped to Gretna, the first town north of the border in Scotland and the starting point for our adventure tomorrow. We're cycling from Gretna to Gatehouse of Fleet. And uh, for better or for worse, uh, this is our Tour de Cosse. How long will the honeymoon period last? Oh, very good, very good. It's stolen all, all of my lines there that I've been thinking up the whole way here. So what am I left with? Well, how do you feel? I feel um, excited, really excited. It's going to be, it's going to be an adventure, uh, a really interesting adventure. I think. I mean, I don't want to labour the, uh, the the marital joke too far, but I'm imagining we're going to have the odd tiff on the way, aren't we? It's 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 going to be uh, it's going to. Well, sport does it reveal character, or does it uh, build character? We'll find out over the next thirteen days just what I'm made of. Indeed. I mean, there's going to be a few silent bits, I'd imagine. <laughs> um, Makes excellent podcasting, the silent sulk. <laughs> we'll try and keep those to the minimum. But let's go and find out a little bit about Gretna and uh, its traditions as a place for uh, young couples to run away and get married without the permission of their parents. Um, well, let's go and have a look at the famous old blacksmith shop here in Gretna. The main reason it became famous for weddings was Scottish law. Because in Scotland, 
You can marry at 16 years of age without the parents' consent. Well, my name's Alan Marshall and I've played the bagpipes here for 57 years. I came when I was 12 years old. All the young'uns in England who just couldn't get the, the, the parents' approval, they just ran across the border and got married at Gretna Green. That's basically how it all started with Scottish law. But it caused problems because if, for instance, uh, there was a, a big landowner who said one, one daughter who's of the aristocracy, one daughter, and she falls in love with a, with a, 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 a pauper or a nobody, and, oh, and they get married at Gretna Green, and he, he would fall heir to the fortune. And that's, what, that's how the mad angry father gets involved and stops the wedding because they don't uh, want that to, to be carried out, you know, because even today, very much so, the aristocracy marries the aristocracy, the, the rich marry the rich, doctors marry doctors, farmers marry farmers, and the poor marry the poor, you know, right down the line, it's very much the same today. The anvil itself is inside the building, now, what's symbolic about the anvil is when the young couples eloped or ran away and they crossed the border here, this would be the first building they came to, the blacksmith shop. It was just purely its location right next to the border. And, then, and of course, 250 years ago, a tradesman or uh, any upstanding individual in the, in the, in the village was, uh, was permitted by Scottish law to carry out marriages and a blacksmith was one of these tradesmen who was uh, permitted to carry out marriages. Now this would be the only building they came, out, came to and of course they would come by a horseback or maybe the, uh, the more wealthy would come by a carriage and it was just the two and two just matched together. The stuff at the blacksmith shop and he performed the wedding over the anvil and sometimes it was rushed because uh, they didn't want the, the angry parents to catch up and stop the wedding. And uh, th that's how the, 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 the anvil became very symbolic. And, of course, he would hold their hands over the anvil and exchange the vows. And then at the end of it, he would strike his anvil, maybe once or twice, maybe three times, and he would declare, under the laws of Scotland, they were now husband and wife. And that, uh, that was that was married, and that stood in Scottish law. There were probably a, wee, a little bit more to that. They would, they would ask them, first of all, are you both over the age of 16 years? Are you both free to marry? And basically they just pledged each other to each other. Very much a marriage of, of declaration, really. And uh, the, bla the blacksmith would document it best way he could. And uh, that's how it all started. Just pure and simply with Scottish law. And this... Uh, building right on the border and what they didn't know at that time well they probably did they could have got married anywhere in Scotland at 16 but there's no need to go any further because this building was had it been another mile further on they would have had to travel another mile further on but it just happens to be inside Scotland and no it's right on the border inside Scotland This is the Tour de Course a series for Explore the beautiful game on two wheels, supported by the cycling podcast title sponsors, Super Sapiens. The Tour de Corse is supported by our title sponsors, Super Sapiens. Their continuous glucose monitoring system can help you perform at your best when it matters. Get into your performance zone with real-time insights from Super Sapiens. 
The Tour d'Ecosse is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. The ride is fueled by Science in Sport. And the Tour de Cos series is sponsored by the Hammerhead Carew 2 cycle computer. I plotted the routes using the Hammerhead dashboard and the Carew 2 led the way. You'll hear more about them as we go. Have you touched the lucky horseshoe, Simon? I have, yeah. I think we'll be all right then. Piper man said I might win the lottery. <laughs> I think I'll take, uh, I'll take getting to Gatehouse of Fleet first and then... Then without go from there. Argument. We'll <laughs> gatehouse of fleet without an argument. We'll take that. This is us in Gretna in June 2021, when Simon and I first intended to set off. The original plan was to do a proper bikepacking trip, self-sufficient, carrying everything we needed in bags on our bikes. As you'll learn, it didn't quite go like that, and we had a bit of broom wagon support when we finally got underway. Nevertheless, who better to ask for some advice about multi-day cycling than endurance bikepacker James Hayden. Winner of the Transcontinental Bikepacking Race in 2017 and 2018, he's featured in Explore before, and he once said, When I step outside of my comfort zone, I feel alive. I must admit, I quite like to be in my comfort zone when I'm cycling, so what could we do to make the experience as enjoyable as possible? I think for you, I know the easiest thing is to say what you shouldn't be taking and probably half of the stuff that you have got with you, you could take out. <laughs> People love to overpack, don't they? I think you're going to Scotland, so you've got to have some good waterproofs, haven't you? And then I don't know if you've actually got mud guards on your bike, but some people when doing long distance races in, in environments that are definitely going to be wet will actually race with mud guards because it does make quite a difference. You know, you're going to want some like actual comfy clothes for the evening, something dry and nice that you can change into. Um, that could be considered a bit of a luxury by some, but uh, if you're not racing, then you're going to spend probably half of the day relaxing. And so you do want something, you know, clean that you can put on in the evenings as well. I'm a big fan of a proper pump. I always carry, you know, a big, a biggest pump that I can manage, even a frame pump. Um, some patches, some rubber glue. I, I would always err uh, for like three inner tubes because you know you have two tires and then you always something might go completely wrong. And as much as we love like putting patches on tubes, it's not what you want to be doing at the side of the road when it's uh, tipping down with rain in Scotland. So that, that would be a kind of cautious one. I would also recommend carrying, they're quite hard to get now because of uh, the times, but like some, um, you know, vinyl sort of gloves, you know, uh, like the surgical ones. And then if you get a puncture on the side of the road, you can put them on to keep your hands clean and uh, while, while fixing stuff with the bike. It's just hygienic, really. I wear waterproof socks, and I think it's a revelation. They, they work like uh, a wetsuit sort of works because your feet will sweat a little bit, but once the... Um, once the moisture go in, in your socks kind of goes up to near 100%, they'll stop sweating. And actually you'll end up with warm and dry feet, uh, no matter how wet it is outside. So I'd, I'd strongly recommend that. And it works better than overshoes in all honesty. They're a bit bulky, but I am assuming it's gonna rain in Scotland at least once or twice and you'll be thankful for having them. I'm back in my room and I've taken James Hayden's advice and I've laid all my kit out in order from head to toe so I can get ready quickly in the morning and all my equipment is where it needs to be all packed up, my bottles are ready, everything is ready to go so should be ready to just get 
uh, myself sorted quickly in the morning. Uh, so now just time to unwind a bit, I think, before going to sleep and hopefully getting a good night's sleep. For tomorrow we ride, to quote Jean Bobet. I'm Daniel Gray, I'm a writer, author and editor of Nutmeg Magazine, a Scottish football periodical. Daniel Gray knows Scottish football inside out and he understands the way the clubs connect with and reflect their communities. He's an author, podcaster and the editor of Nutmeg, which is basically like Rouleur magazine but for Scottish football. He's written several wonderful books including Saturday 3pm, 50 Eternal Delights of Football, If you get bitten by the Scottish football bug over the course of these next few episodes, which I'm sure you will, I can also highly recommend Stramash, tackling Scotland's towns and teams, which really gets under the skin of the country and its football clubs. I started by asking Daniel what he thought of our journey. I wish I was fit enough to join you, actually, because it does sound absolutely magnificent, though I know it won't feel that by about the fourth or fifth day on on your legs. Um, so jealousy in a way, because I'd love to be rediscovering these places, or rather I'd love to be discovering these places for the first time myself. I've been to most of them now and there's nothing that beats arriving in a different town you don't know that you've only ever seen on the map or heard in the football results, etc. And then to, to get towards the ground and see a ground for the first time that you've never seen, you've only ever imagined, because these places aren't often on television, let's be honest, these, these teams especially. And so, yeah, a feeling of jealousy that you're getting to to see these places anew. I think small town Scotland is fascinating. Its its narrative isn't often told. You know, there are, there are several great narratives Scotland either tells about itself or the tourism industry tells. And they're right, it's absolutely beautiful the further north you go. And the borders indeed are beautiful. And the cities of Edinburgh, Glasgow and Dundee are vibrant and interesting. But small town Scotland, in some ways built the world it's where the most of the little things that the, the advances in science happened it's where the great industries grew in all of these places the there are great tales that add towards this larger narrative and it can't fail to interest you and very often i'll be honest they look a bit down at heel now but you'll always find a place of beauty or a story of wonder or a fascinating figure in all of these places and very generally you'll be welcomed i think it's fair to say I see it with rose-tinted glasses in some ways. I see it fresh. I don't have any prejudices against any one team, against any one town. And so that helps me talk up Scottish football a bit more, which doesn't necessarily fit with the usual or the, the frequent Scottish psyche or attitude to things. So that helps in a way. But I think more than anything, unless you're going during a time when England are playing Scotland, which will happen, which will happen to you, um, I, I just think it's not nationality that's seen. It's the love of football. And in particular, it's the love of certain aspects of the game. So the social history of the game, the culture of the game, the things that unite us. And when you support a team like I do, which is Middlesbrough, you've often got a bond with fellow fans of teams who've never really won much either, which also helps. So I think... Uh, one of football's great strengths, indeed one of sports' great strengths, one of cycling's great strength, is it dissipates nationality. It 
it sort of disappears. You, you've, you've all had that thing where you've gone to a wedding and you found a fellow cycling buff, or in my case, a fellow football buff, and you've just been able to talk to them all afternoon. And I, I found that in Scotland as well. So it, it doesn't. It's, it's the wonderful international language of football where your accent gets a bit lost. But that doesn't mean to say it hasn't been noticed, because one of the prevalent attitude attitudes when I first went round for a book called Stromash was I remember being in a pub in Alloa and a fellow saying, "Well, why are you in our town?" And they were quite proud that I'd bothered to come to Alloa. And then at about half two, I set off for the ground and went, well, what are you going there for? So it's more a sort of a wonder that you want to go and watch the team that they've the, the towns have sometimes given up on a bit. That's not to say on the whole they've given up, but some people have stopped going and they can't believe this random Englishman wants to go and watch. I think in places like Greenock, you should be looking at the industrial... I don't want to use the word scars because it's quite a negative term. The industrial traces of, of the place. I mean, take their ground, Cap- Capulo, my favourite ground. Um, it's, it's like a Sibutio ground. It's so perfect. And if you stand on the terrace at Capulo, ahead of you is the wee Dublin end. That refers to the Irish immigration and the immigrants that live behind the goal. So that's a bit of social history. To your right are the sugar sheds huge link to the horrendous slave trade which Greenock had and Guruk and all that area and then industrial crane behind the goal beautiful thing a listed building speaks of the the great ship building and, and, and haulage around there to your left beautiful hills uh, the, the the river also you can see and then the train hemming the ground in railways being so vital to to all of the, the British economy and the industrial revolution of course but so so in a place like Greenock you'll you'll have that those industrial traces that show football's place within that uh, it's, it's in its context very often in Scotland. I think you'll notice, you'll go to some out-of-town grounds. When you go to St Mirren, I know you're going to trace Love Street as well. So to take Paisley, for example, in the middle of Paisley, you'll see the old mills, beautiful buildings, and you'll see that Love Street was in the middle of all that, but the modern ground isn't. Usually in Scotland, largely because of the lack of money in football here, there haven't been many out-of-town stadium moves. So a third place in all of that, where you'll experience being in uh, a proper ground, and something to look out for is Air United, where you can look out for the floodlights and follow them, which is something that football fans that started going years ago will always talk about. We always follow the floodlights, uh, which is something you can do less and less now as floodlights change, um, especially in, in English football. So, yeah, the, the, the industrial traces, I think, and then, and then the, the, the architectural marks of traditional football grounds that are, are sadly disappearing elsewhere in, in these aisles. You feel like Golden Gordon in um, ripping yarns and you can hear the chant through your ears as he walks around the sewage works ground for the, what might be the last time. And it feels like that there. You almost think, I can hear, you know, the voices of the, the, the kids on the lemonade crates at the front standing and shouting at the players and see those ghosts dancing around. It's, 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 it's what the Celts might call a thin place where you feel you're not, you know, you're very close to some other world that isn't your own. I think anyway, but maybe I I over-romanticise. See what you think, Lionel. You might just be knackered. (laughs) A romantic meal for two in Gretna, Simon. We're not married, but um, it feels like the appropriate way to round off our evening. Yes, there's some nice background music, some (laughs) chattering people in the background. We've got a table just tucked away in the corner. And there's, there's a dog asleep on the carpet just over there, so sorry about that, Richard. Oh, you're right, yeah, Richard doesn't like dogs in restaurants, does he? I've got no problem with that at all. Um, we are having our pre-tour de cost meal, and we both ordered the haggis, neeps and tatties. I mean, why not? Let's go all in. We've only 
got about a mile or so across the border into Scotland, but we may as well um, get into the spirit of things straight away. Perfect fueling for the trip to, well, where are, where are we going tomorrow? Well, that is a good question, Simon. Normally, I would do a stage briefing over breakfast, but I think tomorrow we want to just get ourselves sorted, get on the bikes, get on the road, and so I'll run you through the details of stage one now. Normally, in a grand tour, the Queen stage is the the biggest and most dramatic stage of the race. Uh, It's not quite the case tomorrow, but it is the Queen of the South stage because we'll be visiting Queen of the South football ground in Dumfries. Before that, at the 14-kilometre mark, we will be at Annan Athletic after we've rolled out from Gretna, of course. Then it's Queen of the South, and then it's a ride of around about 70 kilometres down to our hotel in Gatehouse of Fleet. Around about 875 metres of climbing. The weather forecast doesn't look great at the moment. Rain forecast for the morning. Doesn't look especially cold, but I think we may well be starting in the rain, which m- might, uh, might knock morale down a notch. Yeah, I've had a quick look at my weather app and yeah, it, it, it gets better as the morning progresses. So I think, uh, yeah, sort of uh, leave the Gretna rush hour behind and head out on the road shortly after nine, I think. Absolutely, yeah. Well, um, how do you feel? I mean, we've, everything's packed up, the bikes are ready. If it's not in our bike bags now, we're not taking it with us. Uh, we've kind of reached the point of no return. Um, do you feel comfortable? Um, not yet, but I'm happy. The the, bag, the bags are packed nicely. They don't wobble around too much. Um, I think I've got everything we need. And if, if we haven't, like you said, once we've gone, we've gone. It's too late. And we're not going anywhere too, too remote. So anything we've forgotten, we can pick up. On the face of it, we were all set to roll out. But inside, I just didn't feel ready. I've spoken about this at more length in an episode of Explore, released last year, called The Twelve Hills of Christmas. I was gripped by all manner of anxieties and knew I couldn't set off. My dad had been in hospital for several weeks earlier in the spring. Lingering Covid regulations meant that I couldn't visit him during all of that time, and although he was now home, I just wasn't in the right frame of mind to set off on what I hoped would be an exciting adventure. I wasn't feeling either excited or adventurous and I knew instinctively that I had to be at home. After a sleepless night, I sent Simon a text message saying that I couldn't set out. Then I called Richard Moore and our agent David Luxton and they calmed me down, reassured me and supported me, something for which I will be forever grateful. But Simon and I were determined to return to Scotland and so in April 2022 we went back. And that is where we'll pick up the story in the next episode. Scottish League Premier Division, Aberdeen 2, Kilmarnock 0. Celtic 5, Morton 1. And the United against Motherwell, evening kickoff at 7.30. Ibernian 0, Rangers 0. St Mirren 0, Dundee 0. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Byrne. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. 
You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.